As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to another classic replay from the archives of Unbelievable. We hope you enjoy the conversation and do let us know what you think. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk and leave comments on our Facebook page, Premier Unbelievable, or tweet us at unbelievablefe. For many more resources to help both believers and skeptics to explore faith, please visit our website, premierunbelievable.com. Registering there will unlock access to all content on the website, as well as giving you special access through the weekly newsletter to exclusive content such as bonus videos and ebooks. That's premierunbelievable.com. And now, here's today's unbelievable classic replay hosted by Justin Briley from 2016. Well, today we're doing a classic debate, the resurrection debate, very appropriate for Easter weekend. Today, a Jewish skeptic investigates the resurrection. His name is Michael Alter. Uh, He is a member of the Jewish faith. He lives in the USA. He recently retired from teaching. But several years ago, he came across Christian apologetics material, making the case for the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, he was challenged to look into it by a believer. He decided to make an investigation, the result of which, several years later, is his scholarly text, The Resurrection, A Critical Inquiry. In the end, Michael rejects the resurrection as a hypothesis for what happened to Jesus of Nazareth, particularly tackling the so-called minimal facts, often used by Christian apologists, to make the case for the resurrection. Well, we'll be looking at some of those minimal facts in the company of Jonathan McClatchy, who is going to be doing this discussion debate with Michael today. Uh, Jonathan's been on the show a few times before. He's our Christian guest and he works in biological research but has turned his hand to various areas of Christian apologetics and defence of the faith. In fact, he's recently started an online apologetics academy for those who want to take their apologetics to the next level. He's going to be defending the resurrection of Christ today as the best explanation of the historical facts surrounding the Easter story. And I'll make sure there are links to both my guests from today's edition of the programme at premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. It is the... uh, core claim of the Christian faith, the resurrection. So that's what we're debating today on the programme. So it's a real pleasure to be joined uh, in studio by Jonathan and uh, on the line by Michael from the USA. Let's come to you first of all, Michael, as the newcomer to the programme. Great to have you with me. Um, Tell us a little bit about how this all started for you then, Michael, and uh, why you decided to make an investigation as a Jew into the resurrection of Jesus. About the year oh, 2000, um, I was in dialogue with a uh, biblical Unitarian, and we uh, share two uh, points in common. Um, 
this individual, whose name is Anthony Buzzard, believes that Jesus is not God, and that Jesus is not part of a trinity. And Jews accept that, those two views. However, Anthony strongly and passionately believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And I sent him some material, and we've been in dialogue. Cutting to the chase, he said, Michael, everything you've written is wonderful, but it's irrelevant. And I said, what in the world are you talking about? He says, it's irrelevant. And I said, well, can you please explain? And he says, all that matters is one thing. And I said, what is that? And he said, well, it's the resurrection. And I said, huh? What are you talking about? So we talked a little bit more and did some dialogue by, by um, Internet. And eventually I told him, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll do some research. So I spent 11 years <laughs> going to Dallas, going to Fort Worth, Chicago, New York, wherever the seminaries were located, and did my research. And eventually, I published my text, um, The Resurrection, A Critical Inquiry. And uh, it's been out for about a year. And hopefully, um, it addressed a lot of the issues. I am working currently on volume two, which will deal specifically with Christian apologetics. And um, uh, we'll see what happens with that. Well, that was more than just a quick Google search then, as far as the research you undertook into this area. Um, Okay, so we'll obviously get to some of the reasons why you came to reject the hypothesis of the resurrection. Um, If if it were true, what would that mean for you as a Jew? I guess it would be interesting to spell out what the implications would be if you had been convinced that Jesus had, had risen from the dead. Well, I suppose what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 would be the answer. However, that is not the case, and I'll accept what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. If it is not true, then your faith is in vain. Indeed. And he said some other things, which I'm sure your audience is well aware of. Well, and I'm sure it's something that Jonathan would agree with in that sense, that if the resurrection is not true, then our faith is indeed in vain. Yeah, of course. Uh, the Apostle Paul in First Corinthians 15 says that if Christ is not being raised, then our faith is futile, we're still in our sins. If it's only for this life that we have hope in Christ, then we are of all men to be counted as most miserable. But I think also the converse is true, that if, Christ, if, if Jesus has indeed been raised from the dead, then... Christianity is true, and the rest is working out the details, as it were. <laughs> so Jesus, for example, just, I'll give you one example, since this isn't really the topic of the show, but Jesus um, claimed that his resurrection from the dead would be the ultimate vindication of his messianic and divine credentials. For example, in in John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, the Pharisees say to Jesus, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all these things? And he says, I will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And of course, the temple he's speaking of is his body. And it says mm. that after Jesus had been raised from the dead, then they remember Jesus' words and, and, and understood what he had meant. Now, if you look at the synoptic accounts, we read in Mark fourteen fifty-eight and Matthew 26, verse 61, that Jesus, before Caiaphas, the high priest, the false witnesses step forward at Jesus' interrogation, Jesus' trial, and say, we heard this man say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and the three days will build another, but not by human hands. Now, Jesus never said that, but the synoptics don't give us any pretext of what Jesus said. Only the independent, non-synoptic gospel gives us the context, gives us the pretext. And, and so that hand-in-glove fit, or that undesigned coincidence, if you will, to borrow William Paley's language, um, I, I think supports the authenticity of that particular saying. So I'd build a cumulative case for Jesus' claims that his resurrection from the dead would be the vindication of his messianic credentials. That's that's interesting because there, there are different ways one could go about defending the resurrection. And um, we're going to be talking a little bit, well, certainly for most of the show here, on the minimal facts approach. But you would say that's not necessarily the approach you would take if you had 
some time to to talk and debate with with someone. Sure. Typically, if I have an hour to give a lecture, or if I'm writing a an article or an essay, or if I'm in a in a debate where we perhaps have more time, I'd be more inclined, I think, to pursue a cumulative case approach for the resurrection of Jesus um, and to argue that the resurrection is the best explanation for a cumulative case. Whereas if you're simply dialoguing in an evangelistic setting with a, a skeptic or agnostic or an atheist and they suddenly ask you, well, what's the evidence for the resurrection? You don't have time to give an hour-long lecture, <laughs> right, or, or a thesis on the resurrection. Um, and so um, typically there I would prefer to go with the minimal facts approach because then you can put your strongest foot forward mm. and argue based on on just facts which are not only evidenced by multiple lines of, of evidence, but are also agreed upon by the vast majority of New Testament critics, regardless of where they stand on the theological spectrum. So you've already started to explain what the minimal fact approach is there. Just give us what are commonly accepted um, by and large as the so-called minimal facts accepted by a broad number of um, historians in this area. Sure. Uh, so the minimal facts was an approach developed to defending the resurrection by Gary Habermas and by Michael Lacuna. These are two um, very famous, prominent, uh, world-class uh, resurrection scholars. And um, basically the criterion for something to, de- to qualify as a minimal fact is that it has to be well evidenced by multiple lines of of, of evidence. And secondly, it has to be agreed upon by the vast majority of New Testament skeptics, re- regardless of whether they are um, Christians or Jews or atheists, agnostics, and so forth. Um, and so the minimal facts um, that um, is, are typically presented are the appearances to the, um, the, the, the appearances of, um, after Jesus' resurrection, the post-resurrection appearances, and the appearance uh, or the conversion of Paul and the conversion of James. Uh, the, these are agreed upon by the vast, vast majority of contemporary critics. There's also the empty tomb, which, according to Gary Habermas's estimate, is um, agreed upon by approximately 75% of scholars working in the field. Okay. So the empty tomb doesn't necessarily qualify as a minimal fact. It depends fact. on exactly how rigorous right. you're going to be. Right. And, and the one you haven't mentioned is Jesus' death by crucifixion um, mm-hmm. is also agreed on by Ex- the vast exactly. majority. Um, yeah. Though we're not going to be debating that, because although I know that um, Michael has some issues around the way that it's represented in the Gospels. I think, Michael, you're broadly happy to say, to concur that, yes, Jesus did die by crucifixion. Is that is that correct? That is correct. Okay, fantastic. I'll, I'll add one caveat, however. We cannot say that he died on the cross. He could have died as he was taken down from the cross. Okay. Between the time he was taken down and buried, but he definitely died. He definitely died as a result of being crucified, I guess would be yeah. the, the, the way of putting it. Um, and and um, we're going to leave aside also the empty tomb, because as you say, that's a little bit more contested as a, as a minimal fact. Um, and in fact, in the course of what remains of today's show, we wouldn't have time to do justice uh, to, to all five that you mentioned there, Jonathan. So uh, we'll, what we'll try to do is talk around three of these minimal facts, um, and those being the, the disciples' belief that Jesus appeared, uh, the conversion of the church persecutor, Paul, and the conversion of the skeptic James, the brother of Jesus. And, um, and we'll see what, uh, what Michael has to say about these and, and your defence of them, Jonathan. So I'm looking forward to today's discussion. Um, so uh, if you want to get in touch about what you're hearing on today's programme as we debate the resurrection of Jesus, as Michael also, a Jewish sceptic who's investigated the resurrection, makes the case against it, we're going to invite your emails during the course of the show. Unbelievable at premier.org.uk. Look forward to hearing what you have to say. Don't forget you can comment underneath today's show at the website premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. Uh, you can also find us on 
online via social media at UnbelievableJB to send me your thoughts on Twitter, facebook.com slash UnbelievableJB to follow the Facebook page of the show and uh, see what's been going on. Okay, uh, so those are the ways to get in touch. Uh, Today's debate is on the resurrection. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. Okay, well, let's um, come to you, Michael, as we draw out some of these so-called minimal facts that the majority of New Testament scholars, be they believers or sceptics uh, or non-Christians, believe uh, are, are well attested, let's say, historically. And and then the cumulative case that the Christian makes from that is that these facts are best explained by the resurrection of Jesus rather than some other naturalistic hypothesis. Um, so, um, can, I, can I interrupt for a second? Yes, feel free. Go ahead. I make a clarification mm. um, or present a different little um, way of looking at this. Um, some of the um, statements that, that were just made are not necessarily correct. Okay. Uh, in particular, the uh, thesis about 75% of the scholars this is something which is often talked about by Gary Habernaf, Michael Lacona, and many individuals. They talk about these scholars accept uh, um, you know, the information and the evidence, and that is not really true. Um, I want to pose one or two questions about this idea about the consensus of scholars. In Mr. Habernaf's works, he, he identifies, or he, doesn't, he talks about, in the last numbers I've seen, like 3,400 references that he's identified of which about 75% are going to support his um, hypothesis. He's had 16 years to identify these uh, references. He's never done that. We have no idea who these 75% of these scholars are. We have no way of knowing uh, if they are scholars, if they're Christians, if they're evangelicals. We have no idea where they publish their works. Are they in Christian journals? Are they in Christian books? So forth. So we have absolutely no idea about who these people are, who he's supposedly quoting and citing. Much more important, I want to emphasize this point, point. I really want your audience to think about this. There are about 270 graduate schools of theology in the United States. Uh, this is called the, um, the Association of the Theological Schools. They have 74,000 students. They have about 7,000 faculty. This is from their homepage. If you go back the past 20 years, 30 years, there have been 300,000 graduates from the theological seminaries. They have over 10,000 teachers. What do you think they've been doing? They publish articles. They publish books. No wonder 75% of the individuals being cited by Gary Habermas are going to be in favor of the resurrection and in favor of the empty tomb. Because who's writing this material? Christians are writing this material. In one word, we can defeat this entire hypothesis. Gary Habermas talks about his sources are going to be either English, French, or German. He talks about this numerous times. Add one word, Arabic. And guess what? You no longer have 75%, and you no longer have a majority of the scholars supporting his position. Why? Because there are about 1.5 billion Muslims who do not accept the resurrection. As a matter of fact, they don't believe that Jesus died on the cross. It was a likeness of him. If you were to include the Arabic sources, I would venture to guess that it's not even going to be 20 or 30% that support the resurrection. So his hypothesis is totally false. 
Okay, let, let's just get a response from from. I, I mean, you can't speak for Gary per se, but but in defence of the the minimal facts approach, what 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 would be your response to to what Michael had to say there? Jonathan? I don't think it's at all true, Mike, that the majority of scholars accept the resurrection as such. I don't think Habermas has ever claimed that. He has claimed, however, I think correctly, that the vast majority of New Testament critics today accept the appearances, accept the conversion of James, and accept the conversion of Paul, and um, a majority, a lesser majority, but a majority nonetheless, accept the empty tomb as well. Um, for example, um, Gerd Ludemann, for example, who's a, an atheist scholar, or Paula Fredrickson um, at Boston, I, I believe, um, also accepts you know the, the appearances, for example, and, and, um, and a um, so, so I think James Crossley, who I've had on my show before, again an agnostic uh, exactly. New mm. Testament critic, um, accepts um, pretty much most of, as far as I can see, of Gary's um, minimal facts. I, is your problem? I mean, the problem Michael outlines there is, but there's also a heck of a lot of evangelical scholars out there that kind of wait the the distribution, as it were. Is that a problem for you, Jonathan? Well, there are also a lot of non-Christian scholars um, who accept these facts. So, I mean. Um, I mean, if you want to um, to um, argue against Gary Habermas's um, calculation and his survey of the literature, then that's something you'll have to take up with Gary himself. Um, but, yeah. I mean, let's leave that to one side for the moment, though I accept that you you, you would question the, the claim itself of, of these being um, widely kind of believed by by the the new testament critical community um uh, and so on michael but but let's talk about some of these minimal facts because i think we need to get there certainly the disciples beliefs that jesus appeared okay what what's your view on this um why why don't you hold that this this does make sense that um, the disciples really did have experiences in which they believed they had encountered the risen christ well i think that you know, Jonathan should actually discuss this first, and then I can. Okay. Give my well, let's let's uh, let's allow Jonathan then to make the case and and what uh, Michael can say in response. Sure. Um, so one of the um, obvious um, texts is in First Corinthians fifteen, which is one of the key passages concerning the post-resurrection appearances to the disciples and indeed others. And um, in First Corinthians fifteen, Paul lays out what the vast majority of contemporary New Testament critics um, today accept to be a, a creedal summary of the early church beliefs, which he's passing on to the Corinthian Christians. And he says, "What I received, what it, what it, what was delivered to me, I passed on." as a first importance, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then he appeared to the twelve, and then he appeared, and he appeared to, um, to James, um, and then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, um, most of whom are still living, with some have fallen asleep. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one untimely born. And then he continues on and says, For I am the least of the apostles, not even worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and this grace towards me was not in vain. For I worked harder than any of them, but there was not I, the, the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. And so in that um, passage in 1 Corinthians 15, he um, he asserts that the um, that um, the, the the summary statement of the early church beliefs that he received that he's passing on to the Corinthians affirms that Jesus appeared to the disciples, and then he says that um, whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so we believed, and so he thus um, implies there that he is on the same theological 
um, page as the Jerusalem leadership, mm. um, Peter and James specifically, who he's mentioned. Now, many, most scholars or many scholars um, think that uh, the this creedal statement was probably received by Paul upon his visit to Jerusalem or his visit to Damascus, which he talks about in Galatians chapter 1, which were very shortly after mm. his conversion within the space of a few years. Um, and so it was very close to the cross. It's our earliest source material concerning the resurrection appearances. We also... Um, have independent attestation to the appearances mentioned in the Creed, at least the appearances to the Twelve and the appearance to uh, <coughs> to Peter. Um, for example, the appearance to the Twelve is mentioned not just by 1 Corinthians 15, but also in Luke 24, where um, appearance to Peter is mentioned um, when the Emmaus and disciple the, the Emmaus Christians, who Jesus had appeared to on the road to Emmaus, go and t- talk to the disciples, and the disciples say he is risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon, which who is Peter. Mm. And then also in um, and, and the, the appearance to the twelve is me- is mentioned um, not just in First Corinthians fifteen, but it's also mentioned in Luke twenty four, and it's also mentioned in John chapter twenty. And so you ha- these are independent sources, and so you have multiple in- um, independent attestation, and you have early attestation, and you have almost eyewitness attestation because Paul here is recounting what the original proclamation mm. of the Jerusalem leadership is. And so I think you have a very good reason to trust the res- the, res- the appearance traditions. Okay, so so and these are the traditions that. As you say, in your view, the majority of New Testament critics accept as making a historically reliable case for the fact that the earliest followers did believe that they had um, seen the risen Jesus. Um, so, OK, where, where do you go with this then, Michael? What's your response? Is this the best evidence? Let's be very clear about this. What Christian evangelists are trying to say is because 12 guys, 2,000 years ago, and these guys were probably in their teens, at least I'll say 10 of the 12 were probably in their teens, fishermen, most were fishermen, most of them were illiterate, or could read barely. We are to believe that because they accepted that Jesus, whoever he was, was now supposed to accept the exact same thing, that seems crazy. 12 guys, fishermen, makes no sense. Let's go back now to 1 Corinthians. Mm -hmm. Peter is the first witness. It's unknown when he saw Jesus. It's unknown where he saw Jesus. It's unknown what he supposedly saw. And it's unknown what he believed. It's just a statement. The Twelve. There's conflict over who the Twelve are. It's unknown when the Twelve saw Jesus. It's unknown where they saw Jesus. It's unknown what they saw. And it's unknown what they believed. Not said anywhere. I know it's a creed, but let's play the game. Uh, he, uh, 500 witnesses see Jesus at one time. We have no idea who these people are. This only appears, by the way, in Paul. Um, we have no idea what they believed. We have no idea what they saw. Uh, we have no idea if the crowd even knew who Jesus was. This is totally unattested anywhere. So that doesn't count. Um, James we're going to discuss later, because he's going to be the last of the, um, of the um, middle facts we'll be discussing. And Paul is also going to be one of the middle facts we'll be discussing. So the material in terms of 1 Corinthians is irrelevant. Another reason why it's irrelevant should be very obvious. You could go back to the very first day and have a witness. It would not make difference. Here's a simple reason why. There's an event called the American Revolution. And, of course, you're on the other side of the pond, so you, you probably know about this. And this thing called the shot heard around the world. We actually have written testimony within three to four days, depositions from both sides of the aisle both the British soldiers and officers and the Americans. And guess what? The evidence differs. We have the Kennedy assassination. We have actual depositions of people present at the assassination. And guess what? 
they say different things. Very strange. Most recently here in the United States, we had a, a shooting of uh, Michael Brown. On the very day the shooting took place, people were interviewed saying, Michael Brown said, hands up, do not shoot. And that became a slogan. That became a creed. Hands up, don't shoot. Guess what they found out? It didn't happen. The United States government did an investigation, and Michael Brown never said, don't shoot, and his hands never were up. So we have a creed going back probably to year, I'll say, 33, 35. It is irrelevant. I know you want to believe it, but if we look at the data and we look at history, the information does not hold. Okay. Uh, very, very good. Very succinct as well in, in answering a lot of what Jonathan brought to bear there. Okay, just got a few minutes before the end of this section of the program for you to make a few quick responses there. Uh, these were unlearned fishermen. Why should we trust what they claimed to have seen? Uh, you know, yeah. Okay, so where, let's where, do... where should we start with that one? Yeah, sure. Let's start with that one. Um, so the so having established that the original apostles proclaimed the resurrection, um, having established, I think there's good reason to that. Um, and when Mike, Mike comes back, I'd like to know if he actually thinks that he did proclaim that, or whether that's an invention of Paul or some, someone else. And, but I think that there's good reason to think that the apostles, in fact, claimed that Jesus had ra- ra- has been raised from the dead and had appeared to them. Um, and then the question arises, well, how did they come to believe that? And, or how did, why, why are they proclaiming that? There's two reasons. Um, there, there's three hypotheses that are on the table here. One is that they were lying and they were deceiving people deliberately. One is that they were honestly mistaken and they were themselves deluded into believing that Jesus had raised from the dead and had appeared to them. The third option is that they were actually correct and Jesus did actually appear to them having, having been raised from the dead. Um, I think the best explanation is that is, is the third of those options, that Jesus had really returned from the dead and had appeared to them. We can look at the other two. Um, the hypothesis that they were lying, I think, is implausible for a number of reasons, um, the chief of which is probably the fact that many of them were willing to die as martyrs and suffer much for their testimony um, as Christians. Um, and there's good re- evidence for that. I'm happy to cite it if I'm challenged on it. Um, and, and secondly, the question is, well, were they honestly mistaken? Were they deluded into thinking that Jesus had, had returned from the dead? Well, it seems to me that the type of resurrection that um, that is Jesus' resurrection was starkly in contrast to the mainstream Jewish views at the time, and indeed in the Greco-Roman world. Um, the concept of a, of a resurrection of one man in the middle of history, as opposed to some sort of general resurrection at the end of the world, um, was completely foreign to the Jewish mindset. I mean, there were multiple sects within Judaism. Uh, N.T. Wright has written an excellent um, review of, of different views within the Jewish sects and, and communities. And the, the resurrection, as the Christians understood, it seems to be a radical innovation in Ju- Jewish thought. We, 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 we're going get, to get you to respond on the other aspects as well, Jonathan, that um, Michael raised as objections to this, uh, this first minimal fact. And we'll, we'll, of course, want Michael to respond too. We're just at the end of our first section of the show, though, so we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back to this discussion in a moment's time. You're listening to a special Easter weekend edition of Unbelievable. Today, discussing the Jewish sceptic investigating the resurrection. Michael Alter is our phone guest today. Uh, he's sceptical of the resurrection. He's written a whole book on the subject. 
Jonathan McClatchy is our Christian guest in to defend the resurrection of Jesus and the so-called minimal facts that uh, he says point to the best case, if you like, the explanation of Jesus's resurrection is the best explanation of uh, the facts surrounding the Easter story. So come back again in a moment's time to the show that aims to get you thinking unbelievable. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Anti Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to today's edition of the programme that aims to get you thinking with me, Justin Briley. Unbelievable is available online if you want to find a vast back catalogue of shows spanning, well, nearly 10 years of of unbelievable programmes, then do go online, premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. Uh, Special Easter weekend edition of the show today as we ask whether we can persuade a Jewish sceptic of the resurrection. In fact, he's written a whole book countering the, uh, the, the, the case for the resurrection. Uh, he is Michael Alter. He's our phone guest today, Jonathan McClatchy, my Christian guest. And uh, Jonathan works in biological research but has turned his hand in recent years to Christian apologetics. He runs an online apologetics academy. If you want to find out more about both my guests, uh, michaeljalter.wordpress.com and apologetics-academy.org to find out more about Jonathan's uh, recent work in apologetics. Uh, And we're debating the resurrection of Jesus. We'll come back to that in a moment's time. Just a reminder, if you want to get in touch yourself on this topic, uh, unbelievable at premier.org.uk is uh, the place to send your emails. Uh, You can find us online uh, and uh, comment on today's show. A little later on, we'll be hearing some of your feedback to recent editions of the programme. We've had some exciting interactions recently on the fine-tuning of the universe is it evidence for god that was our show from last week between two high profile names in the area um, they were uh, peter millican uh, atheist philosopher at oxford university and uh, robin uh, oh his name's got in my head jonathan help me out who was it that i had on my show last week robin collins robin collins <laughs> it's come to something when you have to ask the guest on this week's show who was your guest from last week's show robin collins of course was, was the philosopher defending the the fine-tuning of the universe as evidence for god that's not our, our discussion topic today though uh, we're talking about the resurrection and um, um, well, um, what we'd heard in that last section there uh, was Michael uh, giving a, a number of comebacks to this so-called minimal fact, the idea that the disciples' bel- beliefs that Jesus appeared is a historically well-attested fact. Um, and um, 
you came back there, Jonathan, to say, actually, Mike, um, I think there are good reasons to trust the testimony of these simple fishermen. Yes, but um, would they have had a good reason to lie? Would they have had a good? Is it is it likely that they were honestly deceived in in these views they had? Uh, so let's talk about that before we get onto some of the other objections you had there, Michael. Um, yeah, and um, what do you make of sort of uh, this sort of trilemma in a sense that that uh, Jonathan's put to you there? That um, if as far as he can see the that these apostles wouldn't have had any good reason to have made up stories of a resurrected Jesus. Well, there's a you know, there's a there's a famous uh, phrase about liar lunatic. I forget the third L right now. Maybe Lord, Lord liar lunatic or Lord? That was uh, C.S. Lewis's famous phrase about Jesus, wasn't right. it? Yeah. But there's one other L you could add. Why not legend? Okay. Okay. Now let's go. Let's go back one, for one moment. When is the um, resurrection being proclaimed? So the earliest is going to be 50 days after Jesus was crucified. That's going to be eight weeks. What were the disciples doing during, during those 50 days? So the idea that they were proclaiming the resurrection is totally bogus. Okay? You have to wait at least 50 days before you're going to have any type of pro- proclamation. What did the disciples believe? I encourage your, your listeners to do something very strange. Go to the Bible, and I want you to do a word search for the 12 apostles. The twelve disciples, and this is what you'll find. Uh, Simon's name appears only four times in Scripture. That's it. It's, it's four times. It's, it's, it's a list uh, with, with, with the disciples. Thaddeus' name appears also four times. Matthew's name appears just five times. If you go through all the disciples, their names appear very, very few times, with the exception of Peter and um, John. John. Mm-hmm. So what happens is, no, virtually nowhere, I said virtually nowhere, does it say what they believed. Virtually nowhere. As a matter of fact, when the, when the um, uh, disciples, after Everless, let me backtrack, when the New Testament ends, there's nothing said about their death or their method of, of dying. This idea that they're going to be suffering and being persecuted is vastly exaggerated. Um, there's a uh, research writer from Notre Dame, her name is Moss, wrote a whole book on this. I know that Sean McDowell recently wrote a book on the martyrdom of the apostles. Well, I'd, I'd say that, that I've, I've been in touch with both of them about possibly trying to get them on on that very subject. And it's, it's, a, it's an issue well beyond the scope of today's discussion. Well, let's allow well, Michael to finish his yeah. thought and then, then you'll respond, yeah. Jonathan. Yeah. Most of the information about their death is going to be written in the second and third centuries. There is very, very, very little information. We will talk about James later on today and Paul because that's part of the minimal facts. Mm. But the other apostles, what we have is basically myth and legend. It is not okay. evident. Let's let's uh, let's allow my uh, Jonathan to respond to that then. Okay. Yes, fourth category. It's it's a legend, Jonathan. Um, and how do we know that these apostles were facing possible grisly ends? We don't have the historical evidence. Quick responses on that. Great. So let me just deal firstly with the idea of, of martyrdom in relation to the apostles um, of early Christianity. Um, so we. I have, for example, good evidence um, for the martyrdom of Peter, um, who probably died in the 60s AD. Um, Our earliest uh, Christian non-biblical source is Clement of Rome, who most scholars would date to about AD 96. So some scholars date it earlier and a few date it later as well. Um, Clement of Rome mentions the the martyrdoms of Paul and Peter, specifically in section 5 of of his epistle to the Corinthian church. Um, secondly, we have ind- independent reason to think that Peter died as a martyr uh, because in John chapter 21, 
Jesus anticipates the death of Peter um, and the manner in which he died, that Jesus prophesies, it seems to suggest that it's probably by crucifixion, which is in fact the way that other uh, second century church fathers such as Oregon and Tertullian portray it. And um, it seems if, if John's gospel was written in the 90s AD, which is the mainstream dating for John, then it seems very unlikely that the author of John's Gospel would have invented this prophecy concerning Jesus predicting the martyrdom of Peter had that not happened by the time John had written his Gospel. Um, so that, that seems to me to be a compelling argument. You also have um, good evidence for the martyrdom of James, but we can come to, that, come to discuss that when we talk about James. Um, we also have um, good evidence from the apostolic fathers, and by apostolic fathers I mean fa- church fathers um, who perhaps wrote in the second century, who were acquainted with the original disciples. Um, and, um, for example, Ignatius, Polycarp, and Clement, uh, there's good reason, I think, to think to, to, to believe that those individuals were connected with people in the, in the um, original, among the original disciples, um, and they, they claimed that the disciples were willing to suffer um, as, as martyrs for their beliefs. Mm. Um, just briefly before Michael comes back again, um, legendary. The, these they had a long time to kind of for stories to start circulating and saying, "Oh, yeah, um, you know, something happened," and and so on. Um, what do you make to that general view that that we shouldn't therefore trust the the apostles, the the stories that that did get written down eventually of what they believed they had seen, and 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 also this this issue he says of, and the number of names actually mentioned in terms of what they do believe is is not actually that that much in scripture if you go and look it up. Well, what's interesting um, about the hypothesis of legend is that the gospel accounts concerning Jesus' resurrection are remarkably devoid of theological reflection. So, for example, especially Matthew, the other gospels as well, but especially Matthew, loves to say this was done so that the scripture might be fulfilled and then go and quote the scripture. Whereas with respect to the resurrection narrators, there's none of that at all. Um, They don't have this uh, a rich... Um, arsenal of prophetic mm. references that they appeal to. Um, and so it seems that it it um, it precedes the theological reflection. And actually, it seems to have taken them by surprise. In fact, in in, uh, in John's Gospel, in John chapter 21, um, or John chapter 20, um, um, it, it, it says that they, they still had not realized from Scripture that God had to raise Jesus from the dead. In, Luke, in Luke's account, when the women report to them the empty tomb, um, they didn't believe the woman at first, but it seemed to learn like nonsense. And this is because it went so starkly at odds with their Jewish beliefs. I mean, the different sects within Judaism, at least, I mean, there's lots of different sects within within uh, Judaism. Um, but the main ones were the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes. And um, the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrections at all. They didn't believe in spirits or angels mm. or demons. It's been said they were very Sadducee. And then... <laughs> that old chestnut, yes. <laughs> and then the uh, the Pharisees believed in, an, in a resurrection that would happen at the end of the world, but not a sort of first fruits resurrection in the middle of history. In fact, the key text... In Second Temple Judaism, concerning resurrection from the dead is Daniel 12, where the righteous of Israel are portrayed as shining like stars following the resurrection. But no one thinks to portray Jesus as shining like a star. You would think mm. that would be the obvious mm. thing to do mm. if you were going to make the story up as a legend. Mm. Um, if you look at some of the later second century legendary embellished accounts of the resurrection, for example, in the Gospel of Peter, Jesus is literally followed out of the empty tomb by a walking and talking cross. Mm. Um, so that's legendary embellishment, yeah, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> but, but these accounts then for you, they they have all the hallmarks of being unvarnished. These sort of accounts of that that, that don't seem to have been theologized, sort of 
raked over thought about they're, they're just kind of presented as is in that sense and, and they, they have a kind of a, a mark of authenticity for you in, mm. in that in that yeah and, in and, that al- sense. and also of course um the testimony of woman which is relevant to the empty tomb but um but it but it suggests the, the testimony of woman was um di- disregarded in the in in hierarchical society like ancient palestine in fact if you read flavius josephus um or read the talmud they are very um uh, they, they, they really um, degrade the testimony of a woman. Um, for example, the Talmud says that the testimony of a woman is like half that of a man. And Josephus um, says, you know, sooner let the words of the law be burnt than delivered to women. Um, so there's, um, so yeah. that seems to be, it seems that that's not the subject of legendary embellishment. It seems that it, it's okay. primitive. So the lo- again, um, we could spend the whole show talking about just this first minimal fact, and we, we must move on if we can to, to Paul and James. But, but, but go ahead, a quick, quick response. Real fast. The statement that what Jonathan made about First Corinthians is actually incorrect, because twice in First Corinthians, uh, Paul says, according to the Scripture, therefore it is theological. It is very clear when he says on the third day, and he's, you know, you know, he'll be died and he's going to bury, according to the Scripture, and that Christ died for his sins, which is super important, that is theological. And then Mark takes the works of Paul and expands upon it. It is theological. And Mark is definitely theological, as is Matthew, Luke, and John. Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that the Gospels, which have resurrection accounts in them, um, are, are remarkably devoid of theological reflection. They don't quote Old Testament passages concerning the resurrection and say, oh, this was what the prophet meant when he said this. Um, I mean, First Corinthians 15, yes, it does say, according to the Scriptures, according to the Scriptures. He doesn't cite what Scriptures he has in mind, but I think that, that it suggests that the resurrection narratives in the Gospels themselves are actually very primitive and even um, arguably predate the, um, the formulation of the First Corinthians 15 creed. But the problem with your statement is that, Mark, you have, you have, you have a tomb. If you read the, the description of the tomb, and you then read uh, Matthew, it clearly alludes to, uh, uh, to um, Daniel. And a lot of the other things, you have the angels, the third day. When you read the text very clearly, it doesn't have to say according to Scripture as it does in Matthew, but the text very clearly is making hints, allusions to theological issues. The third day, do a search on Strong's Concordance and look up the third day. You're going to see it appears many times in Scripture and usually has very, very profound meanings. So I challenge, I disagree with what you said there. One other thing. I mean, I guess, I guess part of me is also, though, if, if, you know, can we always assume that if something has some theological resonance with the Old Testament, that it's therefore been invented by some, I mean, it, it could equally be the case, could it not, that yes, Jesus rose on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, you know, as written, as it were. That's not out of bounds as a, as a possibility. Well, there's, there, there is a slow problem there, because since no one saw the resurrection, it could have taken place theoretically on from Friday evening until Sunday morning, because the women come to a tomb, it's empty. No one saw the resurrection. You cannot say it was, quote, on the third day. Well, I suppose technically, yes, it was rather that Jesus appeared on the third day to people. But um, I do want to move things on if we can um, here a little bit, uh, because we've, we've only covered one section of one 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 of these uh, minimal facts i mean obviously we're not i'm not going to get you guys to agree on this in the course of the program but i think you've 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 raised quite a few of the issues around um, both for and against this view that the disciples believed that jesus had appeared to them um, and obviously jonathan you feel that you, we can trust the testimony that they've got, we've got no good reason to, to to kind of assume that they were lying about it obviously um uh, michael believes that the 
that there is a lot, plenty of scope for embellishment and legendary accounts to arise. Um, let's talk about a couple of these other ones, though. Um, before we get to them, um, let me just remind you, if you want to get in touch, uh, unbelievable at premier.org.uk. You can listen back to today's show. I'll make sure there are links to my guests from it at premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. We're talking about the resurrection. It's uh, Easter weekend here on Unbelievable. We bring Christians and non-Christians together. Michael Alter is a a member of the Jewish faith. He lives out in the US um, and he's written a long book on the resurrection, A Critical Inquiry. He was challenged to look into it um, several years ago and he did so. He spent 11 years compiling this book, believe it or not. And um, uh, well, you're only getting the, the smallest snippet of what you would read if you were to go and look for it. But uh, again, if you want to, it's all there, uh, the links to how you can get hold of it at his website. Um, Jonathan McClatchy, our Christian guest, making the case for the resurrection today on Unbelievable. Um I don't know whether we want to um, move on, perhaps, to um, making the case for what. Let, let's talk about Paul, um, Jonathan. This again is one of the so-called minimal facts often put out by people like Gary Habermas, Michael Lacona, that the majority of New Testament scholars um, see see it as an established fact that Paul, a persecutor of the church, was converted suddenly. And that again, the be- well, this one of the best explanations for this particular fact is again the resurrection of Jesus. So, do you, do you have anything to add to that? Is that um, what, why they would take this particular thing as a historically accreditable, attested fact? Sure. Um, so, the account in Acts chapter nine tells us that the apostle Paul, formerly called Saul of Tarsus, was a persecutor of the Christians, and in fact, he holds the um, cloaks of those who are stoning Stephen. And um, in Acts chapter 9, he's on the road to Damascus in order to persecute and put to death Christians. And according to the story in Acts chapter 9, he is confronted um, on the way by, um, by Jesus himself, who um, shines, down from him, shines, shines down on him and, and with a blinding light and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he, of course, um, is told to. Um, he's commissioned to the role of apostle. He's given. He's told to go to Damascus, um, and he meets Ananias there, and um, he, and he becomes um, the great apostle Paul. Mm. And so this radical conversion from from persecutor of the mm. persecutor of the Christians to the great apostle Paul, who becomes one of the greatest theologians of all time. And there has to be some pretty extraordinary thing to to make this this what is often seen as one of the the biggest turnarounds of all time right in that sense and and, in this case we actually have primary first-hand eyewitness testimony concerning the appearance of the apostle paul because we not only have the account by luke in Acts chapter 9 and luke of course was a companion of paul so that's Mm -hmm. very close to eyewitness testimony but we also have um, Paul's own accounts of his vision, and and these are in multiple of his letters. Mm. Um, so one of them, for example, in First Corinthians nine, he, he's defending his apostolic credentials, and he says, "Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord Jesus Christ?" Mm-hmm. Um, and so he therefore claims to have seen the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in First Corinthians fifteen, he says, "And lastly, he appeared also to me as to one untimely born." Um, and then described himself as less than the least of the apostles, describing how he once persecuted Christians. Then you also have in Galatians chapter um, 1, where he writes, um, for, um, for I did not receive it from any man, talking about the gospel, nor was I taught it, but I received through revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, 
and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among, among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. What's interesting about that about that passage is that he doesn't tell us where this conversion took place. But he does say in an off the cuff way, apparently this is brought in for some other purpose, that he returned again to Damascus. Which again it provides um, mm. as William Paley actually so, so there's numerous lines of evidence which which right. point to the historical credibility of, right. of Paul's story. Um, I mean, the, the, the immediate question that gets raised, and I suspect Michael might have something to say about it too, but I'll let, I'll let him ask it himself. But, but for me, I, I want to say, but this is a different kind of appearance to the ones the other disciples are claiming, which appear to be bodily, Jesus in bodily form. This is more of a vision. Well, I, I would argue, actually, that the appearances that Paul describes are ambiguous as to whether he's appearing as a physical mm. embodiment or, what, um, or whether he's um, receiving a vision from, from heaven. Yeah. Either way, I think that you can make a good case that that the best explanation for that is that he really did have an uh, appearance on the road to Damascus. Right. Well, um, where do you go then with this particular minimal fact, Michael, as a as a skeptic of the resurrection? Uh, first, I'd mention that a, a lot is made about Paul's conversion, like a skeptic, you know, a, per, you know, a persecutor of the church. And I just like to raise one small issue: Don't people convert from one religion to another all the time? And we've had situations, I am sure, where you had a person with passion about their faith and converted. You know, there have been Catholic, there, there have been priests who converted to Judaism, and there have been uh, Muslims who converted to Christianity and, and vice versa. So the idea that Paul's conversion was so significant uh, doesn't hold. I'm going to go back to what Paul actually said. Paul says he saw a light and he heard a voice. Well, first of all, he's never seen Jesus before. He's never heard Jesus' voice before. A voice tells him that it's Jesus. How does he know it's Jesus? Sounds kind of strange to me. The other thing is, is that there have been a lot of speculation. I'm going to go through this kind of fast, so I apologize. Mm, that's fine. And this is, this is just going to be theory once again. So, number one, Paul's conversion was because he, he saw the death of an innocent man, Stephen. It's a possibility. Some medical uh, experts, and this is controversial, believe that Paul maybe experienced a seizure or a stroke, had epilepsy, um, something of that nature. It's, I know it's controversial, but these are possibilities. Um, another thing is that Paul became paranoid over the concept of law, sin, and atonement. Here he's been studying, he's passionate for the law, he studies, 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 and he comes to an understanding, whatever it's going to be, that, you know what, trying to do all the, doing all the commandments, it's like chasing the wind. And basically this is going to lead to a change of his views. Some other things are going to be pure speculation why Paul is going to change, and this is pure speculation, by the way, is Paul never received ordination from the rabbis, and therefore this, this is going to result in a lot of jealousy on his part that other students are being promoted, and he's not a happy camper. Maybe his potential father-in-law, potential wife, rejected Paul's marriage proposal, since we're not really sure if he ever got married. Why? Because he was arrogant. He had a character flaw or his, his family line. Another thing is that Paul was a Greek scholar. Maybe he went astray in his youth, and uh, he had a, 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 an attraction to Greek culture. I mean, uh, all of these hypotheses, can I just interrupt, Michael, would, would, yeah. would be to make the case that you're, you're obviously just, as you say, hypothesizing here, but that he would have therefore made up the story uh, in order to kind of swap sides and, and get the credence or whatever he was looking for. Or, are, or, cannot, yeah. or that he, he had a kind of psychological episode in, in which something happened to him but but it wasn't a real thing it was a sort of delusion is that what I, you're kind I of think that pr- pressing towards something psychological possibly in combination but here's the thing you would not say one of these by itself it's a combination of these 
potential issues and material that we do not know, which has not been provided to us either in Acts or elsewhere. All we have is the material which we have. Well, we we have Paul's own, Paul's own words, obviously, on it. Um, we have Paul's words, but once again, when Paul's writing, remember, Paul's writing, and he has an agenda. So he's going to be very specific when he's saying. He's, he, he definitely has an agenda, let's be clear about that. And maybe some things he's not going to say. I'll mention one thing which is extremely controversial. Okay. And this is not my position, but I just want to mention Sponge and some other writers talk about the idea that Paul maybe was personally conflicted and shameful about his homosexual desires. This desire okay. <laughs> resulted in um, uh, well, anger uh, with God. Why would God allow him to have a sexual orientation? Well, there's all and kinds of uh, spe- speculative stuff there, and, and Jonathan is, is shaking his head. But um, I agree. I, I said, I, I agree. <laughs> this, is this is definitely controversial. Okay. I wanted to add it to that. All right. Well, uh, lots of potential theories about why Paul might have experienced some psychological episode on the road to Damascus, which he then writes down later as, as having been the Lord Jesus appearing to him. What what? I mean, we'll come to that. First of all, was Paul's conversion significant anyway? People convert all the time, says Michael. Why Why do we count Paul's conversion as particularly significant in, in this line of evidence? Well, people convert all the time, but people convert for different reasons. And really, when we're talking about the conversion of Paul, we want to know why did he convert? Mm. Uh, and he claims the reason that he converted was because he was, he, he was visited by Jesus of Nazareth on the road to Damascus um, post-resurrection. And the question is, well, did he make that up? Is he lying or was he honestly mistaken or was he correct? Um, And I think, you know, it's very clear that he, of all people, suffered tremendously for his faith. He was Mm. in prison many times. And if you read 2 Corinthians 11, you get like a shopping list of all the things that he (laughs) suffered for his faith. faith. Um, And and we also have testimony from people who knew Paul. Luke tells us this, for example, Luke knew Paul. Clement of Rome knew Paul. It's a very good case that Clement of Rome knew Paul. And he tells us that Paul was willing to suffer for his faith. And you also get the impression as well um, in Acts that the early church leaders were very nervous about accepting him initially because they knew his reputation mm. yeah uh, he had a reputation um that he tells us about himself and people were reporting that you know the one who once persecuted christians is now coming to um to serve mm. the church um and and it's now professing the name of christ and um, it seemed very the people the, the jerusalem christians took a lot of persuading that paul was actually an apostle um and that he was actually telling he was actually sincere and that he wasn't setting out to to murder christians we also it's interesting that um in 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 uh, his account in in Second Corinthians eleven, which is just after his shopping list of all of his all his sufferings, he says in verse thirty two and thirty three, at Damascus, the governor under King Aratus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Now it's interesting if you look at the parallel account in Acts chapter nine, and verses twenty three through twenty five. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So there's no mention of King Aratus. In fact, Paul gives us this additional detail. Right. The King Aratus, and it was, uh, King Aratus was guarding the city of Damascus and, um, and, people, wanted, and people wanted to kill him. Um, now... It's it's interesting that it doesn't seem to me to be the case that Acts is drawing upon Second Corinthians because you have um, such a fre- for, for example you have such a frequent mention of Titus who's never mentioned in Acts mm. and throughout Second Corinthians Titus shows up mm. quite a bit but mm. never in Acts and also the uh, and it uh, and it seems that um, Paul is not drawing on Acts here because in Second Corinthians eleven the list of his sufferings never shows up in Acts in that mm. particular order you can't reconstruct Acts from the sufferings that he lists in Second Corinthians mm. eleven um, so. 
there seems to be a cumulative case that he's actually got something going for him when he says that he really did receive a, a visitation from yeah. Jesus. And, and these psychological explanations that Michael proffers, um, what do you make of them? You know, maybe he you know, was annoyed that he'd never been ordained um, in the rabbinic priesthood, as it were. Perhaps he, you know, had a wife, he, he, something had happened. <laughs> I mean, what, what do you make of these? They're all speculative, obviously, but, but what right. do you make of them as, as potential causes of some psychological episode that, that made him believe he had seen the risen Jesus? They are speculative, um, as um, as my friend Jay Warner Wallace likes to say. Um, there, anything's possible, but is it plausible, right? <laughs> um, and um, is it are, are these are these causal factors causally sufficient to explain Paul's conversion? We certainly um, Paul portrays himself. Um, or, or, Paul certainly comes across in his in his epistles as a first class intellect. Um, and he um, was very committed to his way of Judaism. He tells us this in his epistle to the Philippians, for example, that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Um, he, he was, um, yeah. And, 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 and so it seems, it seems that to explain Paul's conversion from Judaism to Christianity, it seems that the resurrection is the best explanation. We're going to have to take a break. Um, Michael, I will let you come back on this in the next section. We're, we're going to give a little more time than usual um, to as, at the end of today's show so that we can at least touch on the third fi- uh, fact that we wanted to talk about, the conversion of the sceptic James. But you're listening to Unbelievable, a special Easter weekend edition. A Jewish sceptic has investigated the resurrection, Michael Alter. He was not convinced. He wrote a book about it, and he's talking to our Christian guest, Jonathan McClatchy, about it on today's programme. Uh, we're talking about the resurrection of Christ this Easter Saturday. Come back again in a few moments' time as we conclude today's show. I want you to come with me on a journey, a journey to the cross of Christ retold by refugees around the world. In the latest edition of Premier Christianity magazine, see The Stations, a photographic project spanning the refugee camps of the Middle East, the Calais jungle, and the UK's asylum seekers. You'll meet the people making their own journey and discover how their story joins Christ's own story of suffering, persecution, death, and ultimately hope. See the exhibition at St. Martin in the Fields, London, and request your free copy of this special Easter edition at premierchristianity.com slash thestations. Welcome back to the third and final part of this weekend's Unbelievable. I'm Justin Briley, host of the programme that aims to get you thinking. It's a bit of a unique show. Most of the week we're talking to Christians about Christian things. Once a week, though, we get non-Christians in and we get them to give us their best objections to the Christian faith, to God and all of that kind of thing. And today it's a Jewish sceptic who I've got on the show talking to Jonathan McClatchy, our Christian guest. If you want to find out more about Unbelievable, premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable you can find lots of past programs you can find articles features videos and of course links to this year's unbelievable the conference 2016 i'll give you a bit more of an update on that we've got some exciting uh, speakers who have been confirmed just this last week uh, who are going to be joining us for this year's conference and uh, there's lots more stuff to, to tell you about so i'll do that a little bit later on in the program we'll hear some of your emails as well um if you can carry on for the profile between four and five ruth valerio speaks to sam hales about her life faith and ministry She's a Christian environmental campaigner with Arosha UK. She's an author, a speaker. So listen out for that between four and five. Uh, Next week on Unbelievable, if you can come back or download the podcast, Jonathan's returning, this time to debate with Yusuf Ishmael. He's a South African Islamic scholar. 
They're going to be talking about whether the early church developed its Christology over time. It's kind of uh, part two of this discussion, in a way, um, whether the early church sort of invented the high Christology of Jesus. Uh, That's a common Islamic claim, and uh, we're going to be debating that classic question uh, on next week's programme when Jonathan returns. Um, But for the moment, uh, let's get back into the final part of today's discussion. You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. So we've been asking uh, whether Jesus rose from the dead and uh, Michael Alter is our Jewish sceptic. He's written a book uh, after looking into the evidence carefully himself called The Resurrection, A Critical Inquiry. He made the final analysis that no, Jesus did not uh, rise from the dead. Uh, the evidence simply does not support that hypothesis. MichaelJAlter.wordpress.com to find out more about him and the book. Jonathan McClatchy, our Christian guest, uh, he has uh, developed a, something of a, a ministry on the side to the, his day job um, in Christian apologetics and defence of the faith. Apologetics-academy.org to find out more about that and how you can engage in some specialist training in apologetics. Here to defend the resurrection of Christ on the show today as the best explanation of the historical facts surrounding the Easter story. Okay, so uh, we got up to gentlemen in that last section of the programme. We we, we were still talking about the Apostle Paul, his conversion. Um, You wanted to say, Jonathan, that these are very speculative, uh, these claims about why he might have psychologically been inclined to have this kind of experience. And and you simply believe that uh, from all the evidence we do have, it's legitimate to take it at face value that what he says he claimed to experience, he experienced um, this this um, vision um, of, of the risen Christ and so on, which which caused this momentous change in his life. So what did you want to come back on briefly on this, Michael? Super fast. Um, the question I'd like to ask is, is this. Uh, Paul is honest, mistaking, or lying. Well, what about Joseph Smith? Joseph Smith saw a vision, spoke to Jesus, and of course we have the Church of Latter-day Saints, the exact same situation. One other thing I want to mention, and this is an argument, a, a supernatural argument. Of course, Christianity is based on supernaturalism, that, God, you know, God, that Jesus is God, and God rose Jesus. Supposing the devil actually exists, Satan, Satan actually exists. Supposing Satan was the person responsible for convincing Paul, or deceiving Paul, to do what he did. There is no way you could disprove it, because it's okay. supernatural. And if you're going to play the game, you've got to play on both sides. And that kind of feeds into your objection that how does he know it's Jesus, sort of speaking to him, I, I guess. Um, it, yeah, well, it, that, was, that, was, that was with, um, with um, um, Joseph Smith. Uh, Joseph Smith is having a conversation with a light, he, um, and this, this light identifies himself, and Joseph Smith says, well, which scripture, which religion should I follow? And, this, and Jesus mm. tells Joseph Smith, they're all wrong. Okay, and you have to read it's in the Book of Mormon. Okay, I'm not saying I advocate I, it, but I'm just showing a parallel. Yeah, yeah, it's it's an interesting parallel, one that's often drawn. Um, why should we believe Paul if we don't believe Joseph Smith in similar circumstances claims of a revelation? Well, I think the same trilemma still stands in the case of Joseph Smith. Uh, Joseph Smith did claim that he received a visitation from the angel Moroni. And um, so the the trilemma still stands. Either he was honestly mistaken or he was lying or he was telling the truth. The way that I w- would best explain that is to say that he was deliberately lying. I think you make a good case for that. Um, so I, 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 th- I, I don't see that how that's a strong parallel to the case of Paul. Do you want to respond on and, that, Michael? And the, and the, no, and the devil? Oh, the devil? <laughs> Whether the devil deceived Paul into believing that uh, Jesus had been raised from the dead? Um, I, I think that 
again, again, one has to assess the prior probability. I mean, that's a whole separate discussion in itself. I think that the prior probability of the post of the post resurrection appearance to Paul, given also the post resurrection appearances to the to the twelve, um, it, it seems that the the, high pro- the prior probability of the resurrection hypothesis is greater than the satanic. Um, a deception hypothesis. I think we'll draw a quick line under that because I, I yeah. feel like we, you know, we've probably chased that rabbit down that hole yeah. far enough for the moment. Um, let's talk about a third um, final minimal fact to, to debate and whether this supports the resurrection hypothesis. The conversion of the sceptic James. Do you want to walk us through this quickly, Jonathan? Sure. Um, so there's some good evidence. I don't know whether Mike accepts this. Most New Testament critics do, although some don't. Um, that uh, James, the uh, James, the brother of Jesus, was not a believer in him during his lifetime. Um, now, the evidence for that, um, some of it is in John chapter 7, verse 5, where we read that um, J- Jesus' own brothers were taunting him. In verse 5, it says, not even, his own, not even his own brothers believed in him. In Mark chapter 3, his um, family come to take him home, and they say he's out of his mind, um, which suggests, again, this is an independent source. Mark is independent of John. Um, so you have these two independent sources. And then also in John chapter 19, when Jesus is on the cross, he entrusts the care of his mother, not to one of the brothers of Jesus, such as James, but to the beloved disciple, who most people identify as John the Apostle. And so that seems to be a good a series of arguments that James was a skeptic during Jesus' life. And then in First Corinthians 15, we read that Jesus appeared to James, and we know that Paul was personally acquainted with James. He met with James, as we read in Galatians, and then in uh, in Acts chapter 1, even Jesus' own brothers are portrayed as being believers, and, J- and James is portrayed as being the leader of the Jerusalem church by Paul, and also in Acts 15 and elsewhere. So that, that's basically the, the case. I like to ask the skeptic, um, you know, what would it take to convince you that your elder brother was the Yahweh of the Old Testament to the point of martyrdom? You imagine you, know, you and your brother or your older brother are doing Bible studies together, you're studying how God poured out the plagues on the Egyptians, led the Israelites through the Red Sea, appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai, and your brother's like, yep, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> and so it seems you know, we've got good reason to think from Flavius Josephus, who's a Jewish historian in the first century, as well as second century Christian historians, such as Echisippus, who's preserved in Eusebius, and also Clement of Alexandria, that James died as a martyr for his faith. And so what best explains that fact? I contend the resurrection best explains Wow. Uh, I love the way that you kind of brought all different sort of bits of the Bible together to kind of make this case. It's, it's, and I should say, actually, for anyone listening, you might think that when Jonathan is quoting biblical texts, uh, he's got a Bible in front of him. All from memory. Uh, great recall <laughs> that Jonathan has. OK, what do you make to this, Michael? We're going to have to be quick as we start to wrap Real fast. up. Uh, not all scholars like John Tainer and others uh, believe that, uh, that, that uh, James was a skeptic. Number two, um, uh, the, re- the report in First Corinthians about uh, James, uh, the appearance of Jesus to James, is only reported in First um, Corinthians. It's not tested elsewhere. The idea that James um, also uh, su- suffered martyrdom uh, that is um, rejected by numerous theories. Uh, it could have been do, uh, done. It, the the execution of, of James could have been due to theological reasons. Could have been done due to religious and political influences. Uh, there is arguments that James criticized the exploitation of priests. Uh, James also may have been executed because of his state of impurity, according to the Talmud, about potentially entering the Holy of Holies. Um, uh, there's also a charge that he, was, uh, that he was executed because of blasphemy and being a deceiver. There are many reasons why uh, James could have been executed without having been martyred, purely political reasons. 
Okay, yeah. so so you, you question the martyrdom issue. You question whether he was a sceptic of Jesus in his lifetime. And for that reason, you would question, I guess, on top of that, the idea that Jesus appeared to him. He definitely died, okay, and he was killed, but maybe not as a martyr for political reasons, not because he believed that Jesus was the Messiah or that Jesus was a god. As a matter of fact, James never says what his beliefs about Jesus are. Okay. Sure, but um, if you read Flavius, if you read Flavius Josephus, um, we we read that he was he, he died by stoning. Now we get some more information from the second century writers, uh, Clement of Alexandria and Hecisippus. Hecisippus tells us that he was taken to the Temple Mount by um, by the Jews, and he was asked to denounce the Christians. He didn't, and so he was thrown from the Temple Mount. He survived, and then they stoned him, and then finally bludgeoned him to death. Um, so it seems that, that probably. Um, the reason that he was taken up to the te- to the Temple Mount was that he knew full well that if he didn't go along with what he was being asked to do, then they were going to throw him from the Temple Mount. And so it's it's I think it's reasonable to conclude that he probably expected to to meet a martyr's fate if he didn't um, denounce the Christians to whom he belonged. Um, now Paul, the apostle who reports James's martyrdom, knew was personally acquainted with James. Um, he met with James in in, uh, in Jerusalem, as we read in, in Galatians chapter one, and he says, "I met with none. Um, I, I didn't see any other apostles, just James, the Lord's brother." And um, and 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 so we have very very close to eyewitness testimony when when Paul reports the appearance to James, because we know that Paul is personally acquainted with James and received material from James in Jerusalem. Well, once again, there are numerous scholars who will disagree. Brandon, Painter, um, um, Eisenman, they all disagree. And they give their other, their other theories why it took place. All we have is speculation. Yes, he died, but to say that he died because that he believed that Jesus was the Messiah or God, that cannot be said. That's just, that's just a belief, which I respect your opinion, but there's no way of proving it. No, nonetheless, um, he cer- it is incontestable that he certainly, um, if you accept that he denied that, that he was a skeptic during Jesus' life, then it's incontestable that he converted. Oh, that, 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 that's false. Um, um, the idea that he was a skeptic, uh, that is once again refuted by Christian scholars. Yeah, I, I should point out one. Yeah. I, I'm aware. I mean, for example, Richard Bauckham rejects that um, Jesus, James was a skeptic during Jesus' life, and I'm, I'm aware yeah. of that. Um, but, but, but what I said is that if you accept that James was a skeptic during Jesus' life, then it is incontestable that James converted. Um, and if you read um, Michael Lacuna's book, The Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach, he actually interacts extensively with the argumentation that James was not a skeptic during Jesus' life and presents a very compelling, in my opinion, cumulative case for James being a skeptic during Jesus' life. Um, we know that he converted very quickly after the resurrection, at least, because Acts chapter 1 reports him as being among the, the believers, and he became the, the leader of the Jerusalem church, and um, he was a personal acquaintance of Paul, and Paul reports that he met with James in, in Galatians and confirmed this, that he was preaching the same gospel, well, which included the resurrection. If you do a word search and look at the name of James, you'll see that we have an early account in Mark uh, with the family, and then the next time we basically see James is going to be when? <laughs> a long time later, if at all. And once again, James never clearly says, oh yes, Jesus is God, he's part of the Trinity, yes, Jesus um, is the Messiah, and so forth. Uh, what ja- the reason for James is, quote, conversion. If you want to say there was conversion, no reason's given. This is an assumption which is made by Christian apologists who are looking for straws to grasp. 
Okay, we're, we're going to start to draw things to a close on that. Um, we've we've gone around three three key areas. We've covered quite a lot of ground, but obviously um, never enough time on Unbelievable. To uh, I, I told you before you came on that it would fly by the time, and uh, so it has, Michael. What What's your takeaway from all this? Do you want to try and do the job of, of summing up where we've got to by the end of today's show? Um, I'd like I'd like Jonathan go first if you'd like to. Yeah, well, I don't mind which order we do things. Okay, do you want do you want to take things first? Uh, sure. Jonathan? So we've looked at uh, three of the minimal facts. One is the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to acquaintances and disciples of Jesus. One of them is the conversion of Paul, and the other one is the conversion of James. I contend that the best explanation for those three quote-unquote minimal facts is that Jesus, in fact, was raised from the dead. Um, when you take the three of them together, you have to ask what has the greatest explanatory power, what has the greatest explanatory scope, and what has the greatest plausibility. And the greatest explanatory power, I think, is afforded by the resurrection. It also has the greatest explanatory scope because it explains not just one fact, but multiple facts um, parsimoniously. And um, and I think it has the greatest uh, plausibility, or and I could argue that it has a high prior probability as well, but that would take me a while. Um, so, yeah. So that's it. For you, these facts um, can be historically defended, and the best explanation of them is that right. Jesus did indeed rise from the and dead. And as, as Acts 17 says, you know, he has given, you know, he's, he's, God has said today that he's going to judge the world by the man he's appointed. He's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So it's God's ultimate vindication of Jesus' messianic and divine credentials. Okay. Michael, just a minute to, uh, to say where you feel we've got to by the end of today's show. The conversion of Paul is irrelevant. Um, James did not die as a martyr. Uh, we, know, we have no idea what uh, James died for, what he believed. Uh, the disciples or the teenagers who are supposedly converting, once again, there's almost no testimony in the scriptures about what they said or what they believed. The idea of minimal facts, um, the conjunction of alleged facts that must be true, uh, not the facts taken individually, that's the key thing. Citing scholarly cons- consensus on individuals or minimal facts is not enough to prove this. Uh, finally, I just want to recommend there are other sources out there. Uh, Jerry Siegel wrote a book called The, the, the Resurrection Fantasy. There are websites to go to for, for really good Jewish sources. Um, uh, Tovia Singer is one, Rabbi Moshe um, Shulman is another, and finally, there's Jews for Judaism um, with Rabbi uh, Michael Skobek. These are very knowledgeable individuals who can answer many, many questions. Um, I definitely believe that Jesus did not die on the cross for our sins. I definitely believe there's no resurrection. I encourage Christians who are mature in their faith to do a first uh, Peter, uh, which says basically that you have to answer a knock on the door. I challenge them to try to get my book and respond to it. Okay. The challenge has been put out there. Thank you for responding to the challenge yourself today, Jonathan, and making your defense of the resurrection as well. It's what we do every week here on Unbelievable. We bring Christians and non-Christians together. It's been a really fascinating discussion today. And if you want to join in further, why not uh, add your voice underneath today's show or send in your thoughts via email? I'll give out the ways to do that again in just a moment's time for the moment. Thank you both, Jonathan and Michael, for being with me on today's program. Thank you. Thank you. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. Well, what a great debate, and we could have gone on all day, couldn't we? But uh, we can't. We have to get to some of your feedback and uh, some other information 
that I want to share on Unbelievable this afternoon. Now, you may well have heard the Unbelievable conference advert on Premier Christian Radio or during this podcast. Uh, We've got a bit of a superhero theme behind it. Unbelievable, the conference 2016 is subtitled Discover Your Inner Evangelist. It's on Saturday, the 2nd of July from 10 till 5 at the brewery in London. And uh, the, uh, the material, the advert, all suggests a sort of man ripping open his suit to reveal his inner evangelist. But you don't have to be a superhero to be a confident evangelist. That's the message of the conference. And if you have ever felt awkward, intimidated or nervous when it comes to sharing or explaining your faith to others, then this year's conference is certainly for you. Uh, it's put in on in partnership this year with the Christian Thinkers Society. And it's going to be a day really to help equip you to tackle the tricky questions and rediscover your inner evangelist. So who's coming along? Who's going to be speaking? J. John, as I've mentioned, he's a noted evangelist here in the UK, is going to be leading some of our seminars. He's going to be our keynote speaker. Gary Habermas as well, distinguished professor of apologetics and philosophy out in the US. Jeremiah J. Johnson from the Christian Thinkers Society. Tanya Walker, apologist with Arzim Europe and a lecturer at the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics. Uh, Leading a youth stream, Yemi Adeshina and Ruth Jackson. Yemi, a youth minister who established the London Youth Apologetics Conference. And Ruth, here at Premier, is head of youth apologetics as well as the deputy editor of Youth Work and Children's Work magazine. So loads of great speakers. And just in the last few weeks... Uh, also added to the bill. We've been working hard to bring you a really great selection of speakers. Kerry L. Summers is going to be joining us. He's actually president of the Bible Museum. Now, if you haven't heard of that before, you will soon. This is really a global enterprise. It's a quite extraordinary museum being built out in the States. He's going to be sharing some of the vision for it at Unbelievable the Conference this year. Uh, So uh, look out for him. Beth Grove joins us as well. She regularly engages with Muslim evangelists and trains Christians in how to respond and present the gospel in helpful ways to Muslims. She's going to be leading a seminar on engaging with Muslims. Uh, the UK apologetics team are going to be at this year's conference as well. Uh, Daniel Roger, uh, Heather Tomlinson and Lucy Maskell are going to be leading uh, one or two seminars, sharing their experiences, a new generation really of apologists uh, seeking to make the case for Christ today. So I'm really excited at some of these great names, this young talent as well that's joining Unbelievable the conference this year. I'll be hosting the whole thing, of course, and I hope you can come, uh, perhaps bring a church group uh, we we do uh, offer a discount for group bookings. Uh, you can get an early bird discount as well if you book before the 15th of April. And um, students are also at a discount rate as well. So loads of reasons to book now. And uh, two or more tickets gets you a free uh, Unbelievable Conference DVD from the last time we did the conference. So loads of reasons to book um, if you haven't done so already. PremierChristianRadio.com slash unbelievable 2016 now um i did mention that uh, the uk apologetics team will be there well that they're also involved in the unbelievable christian and skeptic discussion group that happens monthly it's something that i didn't set up this was very much an organic thing put on by listeners of the show both skeptics and christians i love it when that kind of stuff just happens naturally and uh, so they're meeting again on monday april the 11th at the william the fourth pub in london seven shepherdess walk and they're talking this time about the deficiencies of atheism from the philosophy of mind we're going to be hearing from bruce blackshaw he's going to set out some of the reasons why physicalism is problematic drawing mainly on the philosophy of mind and uh, then there's going to be a discussion on the back of it between the skeptics and christians who are there so uh, if you want more information it's as usual at the uh, meetup.com website where you can find out more about the unbelievable christian skeptic discussion group happening on monday the 11th of april in the evening Um, Thanks to all who've been emailing in. I had this lovely email, though, 
from Madison. And it is a fairly lengthy one, but I I want to read it out because it's just a really interesting story. My name's Madison, and I'm writing to express my gratitude for your unbelievable podcast, which I've been listening to since I was a teenager. Granted, I'm still only 22, but it feels like quite a long time ago that I, a freshly disillusioned post-Christian apostate, first discovered your show. All I ever wanted to do after school was listen to as much religious discussion material as I could get my hands and ears on. Uh, Your show, admittedly, along with a sprinkling of Christopher Hitchens' debates, were my only means for exploring my dwindling faith, my newfound atheism and resultant cynicism towards religion. Listening to the debates you hosted enabled me to think about the issues in new ways, as well as explore my own beliefs and lack thereof. It was especially helpful to hear non-Christian voices regularly, which lent me emotional support and a sense of virtual community during a time when I had none. Back then I was an emotionally and philosophically shaky 15-year-old. I was too anxiety-ridden about my religious situation to even say the word atheist out loud let alone reveal my doubts to my Christian family. I remember having to work up a lot of courage to tell my mum I wanted to withdraw from confirmation just weeks before the ceremony, after three years of wasted classes, I might add. Unbelievable helped me feel like I wasn't alone, and that made all the difference for me. Don't fret, Justin. I'm not here to congratulate you and your Christian radio programme for contributing to my atheism. In the years since, I've completed an undergraduate degree in English, and although I stopped listening to your programme regularly... When I first entered college, I so missed the religious discussions that I desperately signed myself up for a bunch of religion courses and ended up with a minor degree in religion, quite by mistake. I'm rather a geek about the whole topic, I must admit. At the very least, I can guarantee that I was the only student in my New Testament class to be starstruck by the authors of my textbooks, many of whom I'd heard on Unbelievable. I've graduated only very recently, but I've been pouring through the archives, occupying myself by listening to a couple of shows per day until I can get myself permanently employed. The reason I'm writing to you is not because I think the particulars of my life will be interesting to you all that much because I want to express how deeply thankful I am for what you're doing with Premier and why it has been and continues to be so important to me. The truth is I'm having as difficult an adulthood as I had an adolescence. Atheist I may be but I've never rid myself of the spiritual tendencies that have followed me throughout my life. I tramped them down for a while in emotional and intellectual rebellion against the Christian authorities I felt had lied to me all my life but I feel my spirituality bubbling back to the surface once in a while. I still get a rush from some Christian music. I still feel the occasional pull to spend a Sunday morning in church. Once in a while I had to fight back tears when particular Bible verses came up in class. Once in a moment of great distress and upheaval I even prayed. I always used to fight those feelings, the psychological vestiges of my former faith, because Christianity was bad, religion was an illusion, it was weak, it was a lie. Today I'm realising how emotional my rebellion was. Don't get me wrong, I still have reasons for doubting the existence of God and the validity of Christian theology, but I'm no longer against religion the way that I was. I'm no longer so sure that the atheists are always right on all counts. I no longer interact with Christians with kindness on my face but hate in my heart. I'm accepting the natural inclination to spirituality within myself and all people. I'm working to gain a greater insight into how people of different faiths transform that spirituality into meaningful belief. I'm slowly taming the bitterness that transformed itself into the there is no God and I hate him mentality that David Robertson so loves to bring up. I'm not 
not on the verge of becoming a Christian again by any means, but I do feel as though I'm entering a period of doubt, one that is softening my views, widening my perspective and increasing my empathy and understanding. Certainly, I find myself giving a lot more credence to the Christian thinkers on your show, along with deeply questioning atheistic arguments I readily accepted the first time I heard them. As I said, I'm a long way from becoming a believer again, and I think there are valid reasons for that, but I'm also beginning to wonder if Christianity might be a little bit valid too, if you're willing to come at it from a different angle. Uh, No matter where my theological viewpoint goes from, from here, I'll always owe you, your guests and Premier, an enormous debt of gratitude for coming together to strive towards your vision of fair, informed, in-depth, courteous dialogue. Thank you very much. Um, It was just a thrill to receive that email, Madison, and uh, I really appreciate you being uh, so honest and uh, the candour in that email. So uh, appreciate that. Uh, And if there was one email that uh, deserved to be read out this week, it was certainly that one. I'm going to have to hold the others over for another week. We're out of time already. Sorry, folks. It's been a busy show. But come back again at the same time next week. Let me tell you what's coming up then. You're unbelievable. Jonathan McClatchy joins me again, this time for a debate with a Muslim scholar. We're going to be asking whether the early church invented the Christology of Jesus. It's going to be round two, effectively, of today's discussion. Hope you can join me for that at the same time next week. Coming up next, The Profile with Ruth Valerio.